Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply building a portfolio with fidelity basket portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich it's as simple as picking your stocks and etfs sort of like your meats and other topics and managing it as one big juicy investment mm, now that's pretty good learn more at fidelity.com baskets Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. So I'm going to be super, super honest with you. And this pains me to say because it's kind of a point of shame for me as a like science enthusiast, but I don't really give a fuck about dinosaurs. At least I, I didn't for a long time. Flies, turtles, birds' nests, plants. I'm down with all of these because in my brain, I'm like, we share the planet with them. I can look at them. I can watch how they grow. I can look at what they eat, how they get it on. Dinosaurs were always the wing of the museum that I was like, eh, I don't know. I'm going to go to the food court and eat a soft pretzel, but enjoy. So d- don't judge me because I know people love dinosaurs. People get crazy. And I read Jurassic Park in high school. I loved it. I was so into it that I was working at a stationery shop and I couldn't put it down so much so that on my watch, two ceramic bunnies were stolen and I was almost fired. So whenever I think about Michael Crichton, I say to him, hey, dude, nice work. Your book was so good. It distracted me from someone putting two football sized porcelain bunnies down their pants or under their shirt or something. But what I loved about Jurassic Park was the dinosaur behavior. But I wasn't really that stoked about fossilized bones. I just didn't connect with it until Last year, I went to this party that was kind of like a science salon, and this week's guest stood up and he gave an informal talk about pterosaur wings. And suddenly I thought, okay, I think I get it. Because I'd never really thought about dinosaurs in motion like that. Also, side note for the truly self-congratulatory, you know that pterosaurs, the flying things that are like Terry on Pee Wee's Playhouse, are not actually dinosaurs. They're flying reptiles. I learned that this year too. But Paleontology actually isn't even the study of dinosaurs. It comes from paleo, which means old, and onto, meaning being. So it's the study of just old beings. So this guest sparked my interest in dinosaurs in a way that I never had before because the way he talks about them and how they move really puts life to them. So he's a paleontologist and a research associate in the Dinosaur Institute at the LA County Museum of Natural History. And he's also an assistant professor of anatomy at USC's Keck School of Medicine. So he has two jobs. One of them involves uh, people who are no longer alive. And I know it's irrational and like not super death positive, but I'm a little bit creeped out by cadavers. I'm just, I'm too sad about people dying. I want to hug them. I also want to run far away trying to get over it. But our guest is hella chill about it. He spends part of the day cutting up cadavers, part of it being paleontologist. Please enjoy Michael Habib.
Okay, so what is his deal? This is my deal. Well, you're right, actually. I did cut up a cadaver this morning. Did you? Yes, actually a few of them. Oh, uh, so that's that's how my mornings often start. We had 188 medical students in a room with 35 dead people. Oh, my God. So you get a good cup of coffee in the morning, you sit down, and you take a part of human beings. So that's uh, that's my that's my deal for about half the time. And the other half of the time, I go and play with dinosaurs. There is a wrong way to take apart a cadaver, isn't there? There are a lot of wrong yeah. ways, actually. There are um, there are more wrong ways than correct ways, as it turns out. So, Now, you study movement of animals, and that's kind of how you got into paleontology? What is, is paleontology only about fossils, or is it just about living things of that era? So paleontology, it doesn't necessarily have to be about fossils, but it does historically it kind of was it was considered to be the study of fossils essentially although it more literally is just the study of life in the past and you mostly do that through through fossils mm-hmm. um i'm one of those paleontologists who does play of fossils before we go much further let's define super quick what a fossil actually is i didn't know this until just now fossils are any trace or remains like a cast or an impression or a substitution with rock or even the thing itself of something that was once alive They have to be at least 10,000 years old to be considered a fossil. I don't know what they're called if they're younger than that, to be honest. And the word fossil comes from the Latin for obtained by digging, which is like kind of adorable. I just picture people digging around being like, I obtained this by digging. It's a fossil. Speaking of old things, Michael didn't decide he wanted to be a paleontologist until later in life. I, I declared at age four that I wanted to be a paleontologist. Yeah, okay, just kidding. That's an early proclamation. I, you know, I, I like getting in early. Um, that gives me time to procrastinate. <laughs> so you waited from the age of four until what, 18 to enroll in college? That's a long, that's a lot of stalling. I, it really was. It really yeah. was. There were, there were all kinds of things that I, that, that I you know, wasted time doing in the interim, uh, such as growth and development. Right. It's very strange. Learning to use a fork. Using, learning to use a fork. Right. Yeah. Well, what happened at four? Like when that declaration went down, when you were like, mom, dad, sit down, I'm going to be a paleontologist. Like where were you in a museum? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. We were in the uh, Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. You know what I told my parents I wanted to be when I was three? And you, what do you want to be when you get big? Um, A porky pig. A porky pig, Allison Ward. Porky pig, side note, was a cartoon character who wore an open blazer with no shirt. He lacked pants. There are probably museums for that. You never know. Yeah. It's just called restaurants, I guess. (laughs) So what what was your path like when you actually got into the study of it? How much education does it take to be a paleontologist? Well, you know, it, the answer is it varies because uh, it depends on really what you're doing in paleontology, what kind of paleontologist you want to be. In Michael's case, from the time he set out to be a paleontologist, he finished kindergarten, grammar school, and then middle school, then high school, got an undergrad and master's degree in biology, then another five years to get a PhD in functional anatomy. And then off to join the quote unquote real world, uh, which if you're a paleontologist who takes apart dead people for a living (laughs) at a medical school is uh, not an accurate term. I I don't know what the real world is. I've never played in it. I've seen it through windows. It looks scary. I've decided to avoid it for, for the time being. So you've never walked into an office every day in a tie? I don't think I've ever walked into an office in a tie. Right. Yeah. I, I'm still stuck on the fact that like you spent your morning taking apart dead people. Like I know that we're here to talk about paleontology, but from the anatomy 
perspective? Like, when did you go down the path of teaching anatomy? What is it like for you in terms of like confronting mortality? Because I mean, paleo, you're dealing with ancient things. So do do you ever have any weird existential crises about like death and impermanence or anything? (laughs) Uh, I think I got most of those out of the way when I was young. I was a precocious youngster. And by that, I meant, uh, you know, I questioned the... uh, I, I had a lot of questions about mortality at a uncomfortable age, and my uncomfortable it was uncomfortable for my parents. <laughs> you know, if you if you want to be really good at vertebrate anatomy, it, the model system is basically humans. It's like you know more about your car if it sucks because you have to fix it more. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah, like we basically... tinker in the human body so much to fix it that it's like, well, yeah. Had those implants redone a few times. <laughs> we see some really interesting prostheses actually in the lab. But... Oh, do you? I bet in L.A. I bet L.A. cadavers are like pretty tight. I bet they're, I bet they still look pretty sharp. I'm so sorry. The conversation accidentally went from automotive analogies back to the generous and probably very attractive people who have donated their bodies to science and the curious things Michael sees with body donors. The, the type of sort of implant that I saw most often. Yes. Penis implants. No. Where? More in LA? It's about even between Baltimore and L.A. You are kidding me. No. I honestly, I did not know that that was a thing. We had, we had, one, we had one donor with the, one of the old models uh, that was pumpable. Wow, no. Yeah, usually they're just silicon implants. But any case, uh, so yeah, so we've seen lots of, we've seen a lot of, of penis implants in, in, the, in the lab. But this, this deep knowledge of anatomy informs mm-hmm. your work as a paleontologist a lot, you tend to study a lot of like wing movements of pterosaurs, which are not dinosaurs, technically. That, that's true. That's true. So yeah, so it's weird. So the guy who who makes doctors uh, in the morning uh, studies pterosaur wings in the afternoon, go figure. I've been called a physicist in denial um, <laughs> by actually Caltech physicists, which I consider to be a compliment, particularly yeah. in that crowd. That's some complimentary shade. Yeah, I'll, exactly. Exactly. I'll take that. I'm particularly interested in in how that gives you motion, how animals move around um, by taking is what is really a pretty limited number of different kinds of materials to work with and and making them do amazing things. We have enough trouble making high performance aircraft, good sailplanes and everything that can go hundreds of miles, you know, with fiberglass and and yeah. carbon fiber and and all kinds of metals at our disposal. Mm-hmm. And animals only have a handful of materials really to work with. Uh, I waffle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got, I mean, for hard tissues, you basically got your bone, cartilage is reasonably, can be reasonably stiff, uh, enamel, you know, handful of other things, and then a bunch of soft stuff that's basically density of water. And it gives you some really, really high performance stuff. I mean, some of the animals I work on, some of these pterosaurs were, you know, had wingspans, 10 and a half meters, it's about 35 feet, wingtip to wingtip. 35 feet. Yeah, these things, these things could kick ass and take names. These are, these are powerful, flying, ground-launching badasses, and they're just doing it all with the basics of vertebrate anatomy. Do you have to study aeronautics as well as physiology to try to determine how that would give a pterosaur the ability to fly? So I, I, I do have a joint background in fluid dynamics. Which is the study of how fluids move. Just five minutes ago, I learned that fluids are not just liquids. Fluids are anything that has no fixed shape and yields to external pressure which totally changes the meaning of bodily fluids for me. They could be a liquid or a gas. Let's change the subject. Do paleontologists love puzzles? As someone who has to put bone fragments back together, do you like puzzles or do you hate them? I love puzzles. A lot of paleontologists love puzzles. Okay. Um, 
I'm not sure they all do. I think for some paleontologists, it probably feels like taking your work home with you. Right. You know, you get home and I don't have any kids, but I, I can imagine some that yeah, do, you know, they, they you know, come home and their kids like, hey, do you want to build this puzzle with me? Like, oh, God. What amount of time do you spend in the field as a paleontologist and how much of that is back in a lab or looking at spreadsheets or measuring uh, fossil densities and stuff? So in terms of the amount of time, like how much of the year I'm in the field, it's a, uh, a good chunk of the summer. But that's uh, that's usually when I do all my field work. So basically July and August, a good bit of it, I'll be in the field, um, mostly in New Mexico. Was that a titanosaur? That's the titanosaur project. Yeah. Can you can you reveal what you're working on with that? Sure, sure. Obviously, you excavate basically whatever you find. It's not like you went out there going, we're going to find a titanosaur. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we kind of went out there going, I really kind of hope we don't find a titanosaur. Because, really? Well, I mean, not not we were being right. glib about it, which is what makes it funny. But like there was a part of us that was like, I really hope we don't find things super huge because then we're going to feel you know, compelled to excavate it and it's going to take forever. <laughs> no. And of course, what we found was two individuals of the group that includes the largest land animals of all time. Oh, my God. In fact, one of our one of our specimens may be the largest dinosaur from North America. That's huge. Maybe. Literally. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, these, you know, these are animals that a mid-sized titanosaur is like 30 tons plus. Oh my God. And a big one's like 60 tons plus. How many feet? The big guys, you're looking at a hundred feet-ish. Wow. How many times bigger than an elephant are these guys? Big, okay. a big bull African elephant, mm-hmm. uh, which would be the largest living land animal. Mm-hmm. I think the record is like 6.2 tons or something oh, like that. really? But the average is more like five and change. Okay. So if a big titanosaur is regularly hitting 60, that's 12 what? times. So these titanosaurs are like if 12 elephants stacked under one giant overcoat and pretended to be a person. That's so huge. I'm, so, this is so exciting. I'm sweating. This is so wait, what happened when you were in the field and someone's like, oh, we got a bone over here. Like what what is that moment like? Uh, well, it depends on what the bone is. And in the case of the Titanosaur project, you know, you see some bone going to the hill. And our first thought was, oh, that looks really exciting. We see some interesting morphology and we can tell it it's what we call pneumatizes. We can tell it had was it, an animal had all these air sacs in it. And we're thinking, oh, wow, that's cool. That could be like a big predatory dinosaur because they have a lot of air, they had a lot of air sacs in their bones, too. And we started excavating around it. And we're like, this doesn't really look like it would fit on. What could this be? You think it's because this is a pretty big element is you're going to the hill and you're thinking that it's like a relatively big part of a small animal. Uh-huh. And then at some point your brain switches and you realize you're, you're doing the small part of an enormous animal. Oh my God. And there was that moment where there actually was a particular rod of bone that, that we started to see as we started to work around it with our tools that we realized meant that this was a, a, a vertebra from the neck, a neck bone. <gasps> I love this part so much. And I literally just looked at it and went, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and... And of course, the, one of the poor volunteers there was like, what, what, did I break something? I'm like, no, no, this just went from, this went from a one season project to an eight season project. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, if this is articulated. In paleontology terms, articulated means found all in the same place. Just a bunch of bones, kicking it together in order, having a bone party under some dirt. If there's more of it, I mean, I was, and at this point I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it'll just be the one, one element. It wasn't, of course. Oh my God. Um, then, you know, we've got, We've got a you know forty ton plus animal on the hillside, um, and you start then you start looking at the hillside. And you go, actually, I think it might kind of just be the hillside. Oh my like, god, I the hillside is just a mountain. It's just like it's just which. kind of it's just yeah, it's just kind of sediment loosely sitting on top of a dinosaur. Who gets to name it? Well, that depends. So 
We don't know whether or not we will be naming it because we don't know if it's a new species yet or not. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a type of titanosaur from North America that is named, just one, which is interesting because the rest of the world, there's a ton of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're, like, they're like one of the hot groups of dinosaurs to work on these days. Like we went from not knowing much about them 20 years ago to suddenly there's just been this explosion. So sauropods are those really long-necked, kind of round-bellied, plant-munching cuties. Apparently 20 years ago, we didn't know much about them because our equipment for scanning um, and for transport uh, sucked. There's better equipment in tech these days to work with things this big. Mm -hmm. You know, half a century ago, someone finds a Titanosaur coming out of the hillside. It's like, well, that's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on, you know. Do we um, just have better vehicles now? What, what's we got changed? good vehicles. It's it's more commonplace to be able to use a helicopter. I mean, obviously, half a century ago, people could use a right. helicopter, but it was just they were not something that was regularly available mm -hmm. to well, the budget, kind of budgets that we work at right. um, to lift heavy jackets. P.S. When he says heavy jackets, he does not mean woolen coats. A jacket is that big plaster lump they smooth around excavated fossils to protect it and support it when they're storing it or delivering it. Frankly, it looks like a very fun rainy day craft project. And if you Google dinosaur jackets, I dare you, I dare you not to go down a rabbit hole looking at children's hoodies and wondering if you can fit into the largest size offered. Even if you don't get to name the species, you get to actually be like, this one's Gary or whatever. Oh, right? sure. So, the, yeah. So the, you can get nicknames. So, yeah. So the naming process. So if this ends up being a new species, we will give a new technical name in a publication and I'll be myself and my colleagues and we'll name it. But in terms of nicknames, in terms of nicknames, uh, those kind of just happen organically. Okay. Uh, and our two titanosaurs actually have nicknames. Oh, what are uh, they? They are Daisy and Duke. Aw, look at that. And uh, it's usually the students that end up naming these things. Where do they come uh, so. up with Daisy and Dukes? It's not, it has nothing to do with jean shorts, does it? Like Daisy Dukes? Daisy Dukes, for those unfamiliar, are a type of micro pant fashioned from truncated denim trousers. They are beneficial in warm climates. I, I actually don't know. Okay. I'm assuming that that was the joke. But I, I went back, I went out on a, on a scouting trip to check some some map info and came back to, to the quarry and discovered that my two undergraduate students had named them Daisy and Duke. And apparently there had been some multi-hour conversation in which this had occurred. To this day, I don't know exactly what went down. I, it's, I don't know what they came up with. I decided that if I asked, I might receive information I didn't want. And so it was better just to let it go. That's wise. The idea that there is a titanosaur in a hillside named after jorts is... Thrilling to me. So when might Daisy and Duke make their museum debut? Please put shorts on them. There's only so much exhibit space. Here's the deal with museums. It's actually like the shoe department at JCPenney. What you see on the floor is a representative fraction of what they got in the back. So you may see a cool dinosaur or like a weird old knife or a clay jug, but the museum has literally millions of specimens on site archived for research. The LA County Natural History Museum, for example, has 35 million artifacts and storage. But if you did get to name it, genus and species, any idea where you would start? There's weird rules about names and stuff. And because we might actually be giving it the name, I can't right, say it Right, you can't say it. Um, but we have a potential name in mind for what one of the two specimens in particular is probably a new species. So it won't be easy. Yeah, I squealed. So it won't be easy. So it won't be easy. So it won't be easy. What I can say is it's a cool name Okay. that came out of conversations in part with the native peoples who live in the area. That's awesome. 
I don't mean the uh, abrasive white men. I mean actual right. native people. <laughs> we're, and we were in four quarters, so we're near. We get a little bit of ev- of everything. Oh, all right. So it is the the dig site is near four quarters. It is. It is. Ooh. A species name. We don't have anything necessarily in mind. Although I suspect what my proposal would be is that we name it after the donor mm-hmm. that funds the expedition. Because oh. it is a privately funded expedition. That's so uh, baller, though. To fund a dinosaur dig. If I were Jay Z, I'd be like. Screw a yacht. I'm going to fund a dinosaur dig. If I had like Beyonce money, I'd be like, let's go dig up some bones. Well, you, you know, the funny thing is, too, you don't need Beyonce money in order to do it. Really? How yeah. much money does it cost to dig up a dinosaur? This is the most fun game I've ever played. All right, let's, let's, let's have fun with this. How long, how much do you think a field season for us costs? Oh, gosh. Well, it depends on if you have interns, if you have to pay them or if you just have to buy them like, you know, a bottled water. We have a combination of paid employees from the museum as well as volunteers. Okay. Let's just but let's just look at just the field season. Let's assume that salaries for the mu- for the museum employees is just part of their yearly okay. work and everything. So just the additional money for the supplies, the trucks oh, to God. get people out there to feed them, keep them safe, make the jackets. Pay attention for some huge revelations. Get transport the specimens. I would say eight hundred thousand dollars, four million dollars, a billion dollars. <laughs> I Less than 10000 a year. You're kidding me. No. Are you kidding me? So uh, you can't, you could buy a Toyota Camry used or a dinosaur expedition? That's right. What kind of a world is this? <laughs> why haven't, why haven't we all done this? Uh, good question. <sighs> I'm there getting you go. shrill. I'm just so, I'm so excited. Yeah, I, I've yet to run into anyone who underestimates the cost. They always yeah. overestimate. Oh, yeah. It's there, you know, there's just this thought that, that you know, they must be pouring billions of dollars yes. in the paleontology. No, no. <gasps> no, 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 no. There's no way that anyone could think it was less than $10,000. No. That's amazing. No, it can, it, can, it can obviously climb in from that. But you're still talking about tens of thousands of dollars, not hundreds of no. thousands or millions. So less than a wedding these days. People, yeah. People drop some cash on their weddings. They drop some cash on their weddings. My parents said they went to two weddings last year. They were each cost over $65,000. Are you serious? You could yeah. buy a goddamn dinosaur vertebrae for that. The whole dinosaur, maybe. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's that's six and a half field seasons. The average American wedding costs around $30,000. And the average amount it costs to be a guest in someone's wedding, like getting there, buying nylons with no runs in them, presents, is $888. Everyone start eloping so we can reallocate that money to digging up more cool dead stuff. So do you have a favorite dinosaur? Do I have a favorite dinosaur? Yes, I have a couple of favorite dinosaurs, depending on what kind of favoritism one has in mind. The one that like really has a place in your heart, like you know which one it is. There's one that you really like the most. Sure. So growing up, so the one that makes me think, ah, childhood, is this thing Deinonychus. Okay. Which is very similar to Velociraptor of Jurassic Park fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, incidentally, the real Velociraptor was about coyote-sized and feathered, <gasps> not giant and scaly. Dino enthusiasts love to note that the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park were not historically accurate. Deinonychus, which means terrible claw, was much closer to what was portrayed as a Velociraptor. And I thought this was just someone sleeping on the job. But the confusion is said to have originated from Deinonychus originally being labeled as a subspecies of velociraptors. Either way, these things should have had feathers. So imagine a giant clawed bird wanting to murder you. That's upsetting. It's not as upsetting to some people, though, as a movie getting facts wrong. 
Uh, some of them are. I've seen some people get really upset about it. I yeah. just, I don't get that upset about it. But yeah, I mean, they're, it's essentially, they're essentially fantasy creatures. But Deinonychus was particularly interesting, was particularly important historically because it was one of the first uh, dinosaurs that was specifically used in some of the, what was, uh, some of the original hypotheses about the origins of birds and specifically being dinosaurs. So. Really? By the way, all birds are technically dinosaurs. And that may be a thing that you've accepted and you've processed in your heart or mind, but it still weirds me out. It was also a badass with huge claws and, you know, fast and could leap and all that kind of good stuff. So I was as a kid, I was like, ooh, I, I like the one that can, you know, go and assassinate things with great prejudice. <laughs> um, if now these days, I might very well say and have said that my favorite might be Chongyraptor. Chongoraptor. Now, whew, what a weird thing. First off, it's C-H-A-N-G-Y-U, raptor. You find it, Google it, it took me a while. So this was a non-bird flying dinosaur, but it looks a fuck ton like a bird. It's a bird with wings on its hind legs. It has four wings, four wings, and a tail that was like a foot long, big claws and teeth. What the hell, man? Which is not something you hear a lot about. No. Now, Michael was on the team that first analyzed and published the paper naming this a new species. So, you know. So that one has a special place in my heart for that reason. How do you feel about the um, the feathered tail that was found recently in amber? Very cool. Um, I, I actually had a little heads up that that was coming. Um, you did? Is there like a text thread that all the paleontologists of the world are on? <laughs> no, 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 no. By the way, I have found out by hanging around scientists that they do have text chains and they do talk about nerdy news. I was added to one with some scientists and field scientists called Scorpions on Our Faces, and I love it. Now, a little background on this. Last year, a paleontologist was trolling some amber markets in Myanmar and saw this apricot-sized piece of plant resin for sale as like a jewelry piece, whatever. The seller said there was like maybe a plant stuck in it. Yeah, no, it was actually a whole baby dinosaur tail, feathered. Like the best episode of Antiques Roadshow ever. They named it Eva. Eva is 99 million years old and probably got her tail stuck in tree sap and died there, which is currently making me want to cry. So RIP, little feathered buddy. And thank you for not ending up as a random chunky pendant. That's that's a it's a really neat find. It is the beginning of what'll probably what you you'll you'll be seeing more more things like that. Okay. In the future. Are we gonna be cloning anything? No, you're not gonna be cloning anything from this because while it while it more or less looks exactly like it just was preserved yesterday because the soft tissue is is there. Wow. Um that doesn't mean that the molecular structure is is completely unaltered. And DNA has a reasonably short half-life. So you would just get gobbled a gook out. Like mm-hmm. you could probably get DNA, but not it wouldn't mean anything. Okay. Um DNA doesn't have to break down much and it would be very broken down in the stuff. You might not even get any, but you might be able to get a small amount, but it wouldn't matter. D- DNA becomes incomprehensible very quickly because it only has a four letter alphabet. Mm-hmm. So if you only have four letters in your alphabet, your words based, if you will, have to be very lengthy. Right. So if you break them even a few times, it means nothing. If you saw the movie Gattaca, which was from 1 million years ago, aka 1997, it's about genetic engineering. And I always thought it was so clever that Gattaca was spelled using only the letters of DNA sequencing. So G-T-C-A. Isn't that cool? Anyway, back to old sap chickens. Those specimens are going to be very interesting for understanding anatomy of early feathers, for example. But uh, you're not going to not going to be cloning anything out, out of that, unfortunately. 
Although, how cool it would have been if like Michael Crichton had known about those I'm... sites or if those had been available when he was writing. Right. He wouldn't even have to use the mosquito thing. Right? I he know. could just he could just because that w- wouldn't actually work. But it feels very plausible when you read the book, which right. you know, which is the whole point. Science fiction. It, it's supposed to. He was he found a really nice way of suspending disbelief. But if this stuff had been published, he could have just been like, oh, and they found a bunch of stuff. Yeah, in they found a whole a whole dinosaur in amber. They found a whole hand, and yeah. they just made one. You know, that would have been that would have been great. Although I have to say, the mosquito intermediate thing was was clever. It yeah, was it is clever. It was, it's a very very clever conceit. Clever girl. How do you feel about pop culture and its treatment of dinosaurs? Do you feel like it's good that it stokes people's interest or do you feel like it's there's too much mythology and too much fiction? Well, I think it's I think it's both. Um, I mean, most of it is nowhere even in the ballpark of accurate. But on the whole, I think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. I think for the most part, it's awesome. I think it's great. You know how many scientists would kill to have their field as popular yeah. as paleontology? I mean, it's I mean, how petty would I have to be to complain? People are really interested in what I do, but sometimes <laughs> they get it wrong. You know, like that would be that would be awful. You'd be a real jackass. I'd be a real jackass. <laughs> Although, how did you feel about Ross on Friends being so pedantic and exhausting? Did you ever feel like he got a bad rap? I think he earned it. He's obnoxious. Well, okay. You know, and, and he's supposed to be, I mean, the character's supposed to be obnoxious, right? I mean, he's, he's supposed to be obnoxious and mm-hmm. David Schwimmer did a great job with the character. And, you know, interestingly enough, there is a paleontologist named David Schwimmer. Are you serious? He was, in fact, serious. David Schwimmer is a paleontologist at Columbus State University, and he authored a paper called Giant Coelacanth Mega Coelacanthus Dobi from the Upper Cretaceous of North America and its bearings on the phylogeny of Mesozoic coelacanths. He recently posted about working on a study of some, quote, mystery coprolites. A coprolite is a fossilized turd. From the exhaustive Google image searching I have done, Dr. David Schwimmer appears to have a salt and pepper goatee and a short, wiry ponytail. He looks like your aunt's cool boyfriend and the kind of person you want to sit around a campfire with, drinking a fresca and talking about the best sunsets he's ever seen. Oh, God, does he love it or hate it? Uh, I don't know. Probably a little bit of both in my guess. But God, I hope he's met David Schwimmer. For I hope they hug. I want them to hug. Did you have any heroes that were paleontologists growing up? Like, do you have a paleontologist just mentor or hero or someone who maybe died that you never got to meet? Uh, well, you know, I had I had a few heroes grow up, but actually I had one in particular that comes to mind. This is actually a really cool story. I One of my, one of my heroes growing up, uh, was a paleontologist who worked in Baltimore named David Weisample. And I went, he was giving a talk at a nature center near where I lived at the time. He was like, okay, I was like nine or 10 or something. And I got super excited. I, I'll never forget that day. It was all adults and me. I was the only kid at this thing. <laughs> and I asked more questions than everyone else combined. And he just rolled with it. And he talked to me afterwards. And he was like, and he basically just, not only did I think paleontology was, was awesome, but after that day, I decided paleontologists were just awesome, must awesome people. Like, oh, that's just, so great! You know this this heartwarming story. So anyway, the uh, so uh, that gave me th- this awesome additional passion f- for the field. But what makes it, the story really cool is fast forward a little over a decade later, he became my PhD supervisor. Seriously, did he remember you at all? He didn't until I jogged his memory once. He's like, yeah. Remember, there's like this kid, and he's like, "Wait!" And I'm like, "That was me." And oh, that's adorable. Which is really, which is pretty cool. That's like the end. That's like the ending scene of some movie that like works out. Everything worked out okay. Everything worked out yeah. okay. Yeah, I basically feel like I get paid to do my hobby, mm-hmm. which is awesome. What's your least favorite thing about the job, 
And then we'll follow that with your favorite thing. So like least favorite quick thing about the job. Least, fa- or least favorite thing about the job is the same least favorite thing that a lot of people would probably say about their job, which is even though there's less bureaucracy and less paperwork than in a lot of jobs, there's still enough of it to be annoying. Yeah. What about flies on the digs? We don't have a lot of problems with them in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But the other place that I do field work these days is in Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta, Canada, which is an amazing place. It's incredible. But when we go there, typically in August, the mosquitoes are just terrible. It's terrifying. The, you could from a dis, you could see the swarms from a distance because it looks like smoke hanging <gasps> over the grass. Oh, man. It, I love bugs, but not not in mass like it, that. Yeah. Go, go to give blood. Go to Alberta. Uh, one day they're going to they're going to find one of those mosquitoes in amber. They're going to clone you. You're going to be like, ta-da, we made it another. Well, what's your favorite thing about the job? Oh, that one's hard because just because the job actually is super fun. I love field work. I love opening drawers in new museums and the collections when I go places to, you know, travel to do research. I really do enjoy teaching. Now, of course, what I'm teaching isn't really paleontology, but I love anatomy in general. I love teaching anatomy. <laughs> and then a uh, friend's dad at a years ago at a, a social gathering. Uh, her dad came up to me and he decided he'd give me a little bit of a hard time. And he goes, "So you're you're an academic, right?" I'm like, "Yeah." Hmm. What do you actually make? What do you like salary wise? No, no. He meant like isn't like what do you produce? What do you make? Like, like what do you make? And That's, I think that seems a little rude. Oh, he was he was doing he was being he was being rude. <laughs> I think on purpose. And I. Took a quick second and said, I make doctors. Face. <laughs> Just, what did he do? Did he, he start crying? No, he turned around, popped up in a beer and handed it to me. <laughs> Just, That's amazing. He was like, checkmate. It was just pretty good. So I bet I, you know, I, but I do love that component. I love, I love training, you know, future physicians. There's just so much talent and brain power just wandering around at all times. Right. You can sit down in the Starbucks at USC and you just start talking to people and you'll like learn five new things before noon. That's a lot of quality noggins in one yeah. area. I have some rapid fire questions for you from Let's listeners. But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to AliWord.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by ologists who work in those fields. And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. 
Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at kiwico.com with a promo code ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code ologies. They're going to love it. Okay, here's how I like my clothes. I like them classic. I like them well-made. I like them comfortable and I like them ethical, which is why I flipped when I first heard about Quince. So Quince partners directly with these top factories. So they cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to obviously you. They have these 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters that start at 50 bucks. They have organic cotton sweaters. They have washable silk tops. They even have 14 karat jewelry in case you were looking for a present maybe for yourself. So Quince items are priced like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. But Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And I like that their styles are well-made, well-cut, but also classic. I did not own a cashmere sweater before Quince. That was the kind of thing that I would splurge for for other people, but not myself. But I was like, you know what, Quince? I think I shall. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ologies. You look amazing. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel you. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Ritual's like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay, your questions. I'm. Some of them might be ridiculous. Some of them might be too difficult to answer. I'm not sure. But um, okay, I'm, I'm just going to start. David wants to know any new thoughts on what color dinosaurs were? 
Any new thoughts of a colonizer? It depends on how new um, you're looking at, but within the last handful of years, yes, there was a significant breakthrough in, it's still a little bit controversial, but seems to be accurate, in looking at the impressions of feathers in particular, because feathers store their pigments, some of their pigments, in these little kind of little capsules, basically, Mm -hmm. that uh, do preserve in some of these fossils, some of these really well-preserved fossils. You need a microscope to see them, but they are there. They're called melanosomes, and they store melanin, Mm -hmm. uh, or melanins, I should say, which is a family of different pigments. And of course, the original pigment isn't in them anymore, but the shape and size of the melanosome tells you what kind of melanin it had in Ah. it. So they can use microscopy, uh, advanced microscopy and imaging techniques to on, on those feathers to determine where certain melanins were located. Ooh, what is microscopy? It's just looking at things with a microscope. Okay. That means they can get some of the blacks, grays, dark browns, and reddish browns, but they can't get other colors. Mm-hmm. So we have some idea that some of these things at least had bold patterns, but we don't know how bold the colors were. Interesting. Okay. Tony wants to know if dinosaurs are the ancestors of modern birds, does that mean that dinosaurs tasted like chicken? Uh, they probably did uh, taste like chicken. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, the w- w- way of putting it is birds are just weird dinosaurs. Yeah. And uh, and they probably did. I mean, keep in mind, the, uh, the closest living relatives of birds are crocodilians. And if you've ever had alligator, it tastes a little bit like chicken too. So there you go. So there's what we call a phylogenetic bracket in uh, of of tastiness there in uh, <laughs> technical about it and yeah so i imagine it would taste pretty much pretty much like chicken your typical dinosaur would probably be mostly more dark meat than white meat because um, they more hemoglobin for for moving uh sort of it's very close with what turns the, the dark meat dark is something called myoglobin which okay. is used for storing oxygen in muscle my bad and it's only you you, 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 you're on the right track. It's all good. Um, and that's used particularly in what we call aerobic muscle. So muscle that uses a lot of oxygen. It's high endurance muscle. So it's this oxygen storing protein, myoglobin, that makes dark meat dark, which is why legs, which move around more, are dark meat. And chicken breast, which just sits there not flapping much, is white. So good luck ever looking at a roasted dinosaur the same. Adam has a question. Uh, how do you know when to switch brushes when you're digging out a fossil? How do you know when to switch brushes when the one you currently have is unusable? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's uh, as, as we've already discussed, paleontologists are cheap uh, mm-hmm. and we will use them until they're basically worn to hell. And then you just do you have to get the finer and finer brushes when you're getting tiny grains of sand off? Uh, you don't usually have to reduce the brush size much, maybe a little bit. It's more things like chisel, anything sharp, chisel sizes, things like that. As you could, if you're doing some more detailed work, you have to go to a smaller tool. Um, brushes, uh, any kind of broad, soft paintbrush will kind of do. Um, uh, certain bristle types are better than others, but you know it's you know it's not it's not like it's not like painting where you're going out to detail work. You just right. you're not taking off each individual grain of sand. You just you have some loose stuff and then you brush it out of the way, and you have some more loose stuff and you brush it out of the way. The key thing is to not damage the fossil. I I always picture you guys going down to like a watercolor, two hairs on the brush, like delicately. It's good to know that you guys no. are just like no, just get the dust off. I've used dental tools to etch stuff around a fossil before. That seems fun. Um, it is for a while, and then it starts to become tedious, but it's mostly fun. Yeah, I obviously love it. But yeah, we don't go to tiny brushes. Uh, TJ wants to know how many of the fossils on display at museums are actually replicas? 
for casts. Right, right. So it depends on what museum you're at. And it, all, it depends in a large part on what age the museum is and or that the exhibit is in particular, when it was built. If it's a really old exhibit, say, so you go, say it hasn't been changed since the 1920s, it's likely mostly original material. Oh. Uh, because during that time, they didn't do as much casting. They didn't mind drilling through some of these things to put them on exhibit. And then as you got into the mid to late 20th century, that fell out of favor because they didn't want to put holes in the research specimen. But now, if it's a really recent exhibit, ironically enough, you're going to see more original stuff on display again because we have better armatures now, what we call cradle armatures. Armatures are the metal cradles that hold the bones in place externally. Not lets you remove pieces for research and put them back, do whatever. More importantly, you don't have to drill the shit out of fossils to wire them together, which is very old school. Now, what percentage of each of those specimens of original is a whole nother ball game. You very rarely find a complete skeleton. So yeah. there's a few different ways of, of ending up with a complete skeleton for exhibit. One is you create a composite from multiple originals of the same species that are all similar enough in age and size that it'll more or less work as an average individual. So what you're displaying isn't a single individual ever lived, but it's sort of an average of four or five individuals that were very similar. So it's like a frankensaur? It's like a frankensaur. Okay. Yeah. And then if the thing's really incomplete, and this happens quite often, like you you found it, you know, you have enough to know what it is, you have enough to know it's a, a new animal, what have you, but you only have, say, 15% of the, of the skeleton, you will then fill in the rest of casts. But the museums are trying their best. Yeah. So do some do some placard reading. It's interesting to see trends in paleontology. And I, I don't know. It's interesting to, to see paleontology itself evolve. Steven, one of our audio engineers, really, really, really big dinosaur nerd, like super big. You may know Stephen Ray Morris from being America's podcast darling and from his own programs, such as the Purrcast, which is about cats, and See Jurassic Right, which is his podcast devoted solely to the movie. And it involves his own childhood Jurassic Park fanfic, which is lit as fuck. Oh, I know. I had a question. Sorry, I had a question about the uh, the Toro, uh, the Toro Ceratops and the Triceratops controversy. The controversy here is that sometimes dinos get mistaken for other ones. And dinosaur ghosts hate this. Um, if uh, the Triceratops is just a juvenile uh, Torosaurus, or if it, or if the you know they decided if it was actually two different species, right? So that is that is actually still a that is an ongoing debate. The majority of paleontologists that work on horned dinosaurs consider them still to be separate species, but there is one research team that has uh, published data indicating that they think that Triceratops is actually what we call a junior synonym. That is, it's really just a juvenile of another animal. I'm personally not entirely convinced, but it's a neat idea. But right now, I'd say the majority opinion amongst paleontologists is still that Triceratops is a valid name. But we'll see how it, how it plays out. Cool. Thank you. No worries. <laughs> What's the hot goss on uh, Brontosaurus? On Brontosaurus. So, so the, the, the short answer is Brontosaurus is a valid name again. Do you like petty gossip? Okay, then this is a beautiful story. So in the late 1800s, two rich dudes, Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope had a mutual reciprocal hatred for each other. They tried to outdo each other in terms of paleontological supremacy. And they would sabotage each other's work. They would publicly discredit the other one. One of them, Marsh, put the wrong skull on an apatosaurus and called it a brontosaurus. In the end, we got a lot of fossils, a lot of knowledge out of their rivalry, but they both went broke in the process. Just Google bone wars. It's like a Bravo show, but with more monocles. But here's the update on the brontosaurus. 
The original material that was named Brontosaurus was then later found to have been comprised of multiple animals of different species. Whoops. And so it was decided that Brontosaurus was not a valid name because, well, it's all known stuff. You can't combine them and say it's a new animal. Right. Researchers recently went through that material again with better knowledge, more data than we now have because over time you get better and better knowledge of what's out there, they cross-compared a bunch of stuff. And what they found was that, yes, a lot of that material was already known species, but some of it didn't match anything and therefore was, in fact, new. Dope. And and that means the original name holds. That's some good breaking news on the brontosaurus front. Yes. I feel like between Pluto and brontosaurus, a lot of people got really confused about who was what, what was happening. Just over 10 years ago, just to catch you up, Pluto was demoted to a dwarf planet because it doesn't have enough game compared to the objects around it. That is a very casual explanation. Like Pluto somewhere just butt hurt. Yeah, right. Just crying into a wine cooler being like, Who am, what am I? <laughs> what am I? Right. Well, okay, last question. This is actually from Leela Higgins, who uh, an entomologist at the mm-hmm. Natural History Museum. She wants to know, how does studying ancient fossils help the world today? Ah, that is a good question. So I, and, and I can give, there's a couple of different answers to that one. One answer would be that that knowledge for its own sake is kind of helping the world. On a more practical side, if, if the question is really, you know, what is it, what sort of practical applications does it have? Uh, I'll be honest to say that some of it doesn't have any, but some of it does. If you want to know, for example, what kind of shit goes down when global, when global atmospheric energy, i.e., Surface temp- average surface temperature changes very rapidly. You need to go into the fossil record. This shit has happened before, right? Right. It's not. It's not like the Earth has never seen rapid warming or rapid cooling or things before. It did. It's, that's one of the reasons why biologists, for example, get scared when you look at the the, te- the growing temperature spike. Mm-hmm. It's because oh yeah yeah we've seen this in our records right about the time a whole bunch of shit died. Yeah. Right. And, and it's not, of course, because stuff gets gets too warm. It's because of the rate. Right. And and if you want to know how fast things have to change to be disruptive, mm-hmm. you have to look at the fossil record. For more info on this, look up huge ass meteor that slammed into an area of present day Mexico over 65 million years ago and changed the climate, leading to mass extinction of 75 percent of the animals and plants on Earth, a.k.a. the KT event, K-T. And then lastly, in my particular case, as a biomechanist, I do work with engineers on robotics applications. Aha. Uh-huh. For the most part, if you're interested in an animal model from, say, you want to make a a running robot or something, you want to look at, get inspiration from biological systems, living things are the first place you would normally go because you can get a lot more data from them, obviously. However, 99.9% of all things that have ever lived are extinct. How weird is that? 99.9% of all things that have ever lived are extinct. Just do you. Cut bangs. Text your crush. We're all going to die. So if you limit yourself to just looking at those things, you're only getting a small fraction of the possible solutions to moving around or eating or whatever the things that you want to that you want to model. So looking at other ways it's been done is very informative. Well, I mean, it's I think that's kind of the basis of why people are curious about science is that the past can hopefully or possibly inform the future. So you always have like a vested interest in knowledge because it could it kind of plots your course going forward, it seems. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, that was a much much more succinct way of putting what I rambled on about. Well done. The idea of us having a unmanned aviation that's in the shape of a pterosaur 
just like a robotic pterosaur. Can you work on that? I, I <laughs> that could probably work on that. I don't, I don't know how useful that would be, but we could probably work on it. That would be pretty funny. A rideable robot pterosaur that you can use to get to work. Can Beat I have the LA any? traffic. Yeah. Is that okay? I will. We'll see what I can do. Put yeah. it on your to-do list. To very gingerly stalk Dr. Michael Habib. Find him on the Twitters at AeroEvo, A-E-R-O-E-V-O, because aerial evolution is his bag. And to see photos of his fieldwork in the museum, but probably not cadavers, follow him on Instagram. He's at Habibinator, just as it sounds. Uh, this podcast is on Twitter at OlogiesPod and on Instagram at Ologies. And I'm on both of those as Allie Ward. And if you like this podcast and you like not having to listen to a bunch of ads, consider supporting it for about the price of a coffee per month on Patreon. I'm putting this out myself because I love doing it. Hopefully you like it. So join the community on Patreon. Um, thank you to everyone who's already supporting on Patreon. I, I want to hug all of you. Um, and thank you to anyone who's bought merch at ologiesmerch.com. And to my friend Katie for her amazing animation she's making, which you'll see soon. And for the feedback she gave me in helping shape the show. Dude, you roll. And to my folks who dug up that old tape, who I guess that makes it kind of a fossil. It was obtained by digging. And who listened to this, even though the language and subject matter can be uh, not safe for parents. But above all else, remember, ask smart people dumb questions before a future urologist is dissecting you or a meteor crashes into the planet and kills us all. Next week, gemology. So then we like get outside and then it's like the deepest, biggest boom you've ever felt. Whoa. And it was just like, boom. And I was like, oh my God, that's so scary. Okay, say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Dermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, oligopathology, nephology, seriology, cellology. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free.